the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We are still waiting for all of the results from Tuesday's elections, but we're also learning more every day and really every hour about what they mean. Today, we're going to take a look at where the national picture stands with control of Congress and then turn back to Michigan to dive deeper into proposal results and more on the Democrats' big vote totals. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Midterm elections are usually a referendum on the party that controls the White House. If there's a Republican president, then Republicans often are punished by voters two years after that president was elected. If the president is a Democrat, as he is right now, the expectation is the same, that Voters would be frustrated with the fits and starts of the first two years that almost anybody has in office and would send a message through midterm elections saying so. What's more, right now, we've got a lot of economic issues that are at minimum uncertain, if not downright negative. Prices are quite high right now at the pump, at grocery stores, everywhere we spend Money And that typically motivates voters almost more than anything else to punish the party in power. But after Tuesday's elections, it's clear voters had something else on their minds. Democrats seem to come out in almost record numbers in many states and seem to have signaled, at least, that they'd like for the Democrats to keep power in their states and maybe in Washington, in Congress. The House does appear to be going in the direction of Republican control, but if that happens, it will be a pretty narrow majority, which will make whoever the Speaker of the House is uh, have a pretty tough time uh, getting anything done. The Senate, on the other hand, looks to still be pretty much a toss-up. We won't know what that looks like for sure, I think at least until uh, December 16th when the runoff election in Georgia between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker uh, is over. And when you look at governor's mansions across the country, there are a lot more Democrats who seem to either keep their jobs or get jobs uh, in states that had been controlled by Republicans. So how did all this happen? How big of an effect did the Dobbs decision about abortion in the spring have on voting patterns? How much did the January 6th insurrection or the fact that you still have a lot of election deniers in the Republican Party, many of them on the ballot this fall, making people uncomfortable about the idea that we need to move on, that uh, we need to have trust and faith in the democratic process? Why did do Democrats do so well on Tuesday? And why did Republicans not make more of the midterm opportunity? That is where we want to continue the conversation about Tuesday's elections. I want to continue to hear from you. What do you make of what happened uh, at the ballot box on Tuesday? What do you make of what happened here in Michigan? What do you make of what's happening on a national level? The still uncertain uh, outcomes of control of Congress. Did you watch the president's speech yesterday? Uh, what did you think about what he said about the results? But key to that question is, what did you think about what he said about how the next two years will play out, how he would like the next two years to play out? 
There were lots of questions about how he would handle inflation. There were questions about Ukraine. There were questions about any number of social issues. What did you take away from what Biden said? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And uh, we can work you into the conversation. We've got a great guest with us today to talk about the national picture after Tuesday's uh, elections. Patrick Marley is a national reporter who focuses on voting issues in the upper Midwest for The Washington Post. Patrick, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thank you for having me on. So I want to start here. Why wasn't there a red wave the way that many people anticipated. And you cover the uh, the upper Midwest, which I assume includes Michigan and Wisconsin and Minnesota. These are states where we saw on a state level uh, incredible efforts and achievement by Democrats to either hold on to power or to gain power. I know that here in Detroit, we're really focused on what happened here in Michigan uh, but I know a lot of folks in Minnesota are talking a lot about uh, what happened in the elections there. So, so what's your take on why Republicans couldn't sell what seemed to be a pretty easy message? Uh, it's midterms. Uh, the president is not terribly popular. Uh, why didn't that translate into a big day for them? Well, I think you touched on uh, much of that in your introduction, that um, the Dobbs decision was this sort of tectonic event that rippled through politics in a way, you know, we weren't really sure how it would play out. It has proved to be very um, bad for Republicans. And, you know, if you think back to a year ago, uh, the expectations were that this would have just been an absolute route for Republicans, that they would have been in tremendous shape after this election, because, like you say, Biden's numbers are really bad. Inflation is high. Right now, to try to control inflation, you've got interest rates that are going up, but we haven't had the effects yet of that bringing down inflation. So you've got sort of a double whammy, particularly for people who are trying to buy a house or a car. Um, and just the history is that in midterm elections, the party in power loses uh, loses some seats. So it should have been a really good night. But you had, um, on top of uh, the abortion issue, which played very big, um, Trumpism. I think that, you know, the Republican Party is still wrestling with uh, a segment of their base that is very devoted to the former president and uh, a number of Republicans who want to move on. And, you know, Trump's numbers, for you take the whole electorate into account, is, are, are not very good either. And so normally you don't have the um, differences in a – like in a presidential election, it's two candidates – uh, maybe both of them with some negatives and voters have to choose. And in the midterm, it's sort of more a referendum on the president. In this case, because Trump has remained so public, you did once again have that contrast between two figures, neither of them very popular, but um, it turned out to uh, work quite a bit in Democrats' favor this time around. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you do have some states where – Republicans actually did pretty well. Ohio, Florida, Texas, North Carolina, they all saw Republican gains. What's the difference between those areas of the country and and places where Democrats seem to be able to hold the line better? I think that's actually a pretty important question as we kind of turn our attention now to 2024, the next presidential uh, election. I think there are some some things that happened in those states. There are some issues, uh, candidates in those states who, who could play a real role in uh, Republicans kind of crafting their message to, to, to take control uh, in, in two years. So Florida is definitely the bright spot for Republicans on um, election night. DeSantis, you know, is a national figure already, just breezed into re-election. Rubio also, um, you know, very easily won. And, you know, I think both Florida and Ohio in the popular imagination are sort of these swing states, you know, because they were so important if you go back to 2000 and 2004 elections. But those states have really shifted and are 
pretty Republican now. Um, that should be abundantly clear after this past Tuesday night. In Ohio, uh, J.D. Vance won. You did see um, Democrats make a play for that seat with Tim Ryan trying to run as a different kind of Democrat, one not as associated with the National Party, one trying to win back the working-class voters um, that, uh, that Trump took away from, from Democrats in many ways. You know, I don't... Although he didn't win, I don't think that um, that's necessarily means that strategy is bad for Democrats in certain states. You know, John Fetterman won in Pennsylvania with a, a similar approach of appeal to uh, working people. Um, and so I think you will see that kind of strategy maybe transplanted to more states, though Ohio looks like it's a place where, where Democrats just really can't compete in, in statewide uh, races for mm, the moment. Yeah. I mean, Ohio and Florida, which uh, if we go back a few cycles, these were these were battleground states. These were states that we kind of looked to 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 determine national outcomes. I would say that, you know, Florida seems very much out of reach for Democrats uh, at this point. They haven't won it in a presidential contest in, in quite some time. And, and as we saw uh, the internal politics in the state are very red. Ohio seems to be really headed uh, the same way. Is that part of a larger shift of alignment of, uh, of the political alignment in the in the country that has uh, seen states like North Carolina and Virginia, uh, Arizona and Nevada emerge as as battlegrounds, uh, and and these other states uh, move more solidly into the Republican column. Yeah, absolutely. The map has has shifted, and you know the the upper Midwest is a big swing place, right? Like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and uh, Michigan all went for Trump in 2016, and then for Biden in 2020. Um, I think you in 2024, those three states. There's going to be so much attention for people in Michigan who are tired of the political ads they just endured. Buckle up, because you're going to see a whole bunch more than in two years. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, Arizona, as you mentioned, I mean, that is clearly a key battleground. Uh, we still don't know the results of the uh, governor's race down there or the Senate race, but um, you're going to see an intense focus down there in the southwest. And then Georgia is the other place where, um, you know, you've got mixed results, right? Uh, Brian Kemp uh, pretty comfortably got into a second term as governor. Um, but the Senate race, as you mentioned, is going right into a runoff. You know, that we're going to have deja vu here very likely because uh, the control of the Senate may be determined by that state once again in a runoff. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to – those are the, the hotspots. And it just underlies this weird system we have in America where, you know, this relatively tiny population of voters have these supercharged voting powers. And <laughs> you live in Michigan, you're fortunate to have that. But if you live in – you know, Tennessee or Montana or, you know, uh, some other state, most other states, California, um, your vote doesn't really carry much weight in a presidential election because we know how those electoral college votes are going to go. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking right now with Patrick Marley, a Washington Post national reporter who focuses on voting issues in the upper Midwest. We're talking about uh, Tuesday's election results, what they mean at a national level, where we stand uh, with control of Congress, something that I don't think we will be able to say much definitively about for at least several days, if not several weeks. We want to hear from you, though, about how you're feeling about what happened on Tuesday. How do you feel about what happened here in Michigan? How do you feel about the way things are going Nationally, are you somebody who was really apprehensive about the job that uh, President Biden has done for the last two years and wanted a change? Or are you somebody who's, who decided that maybe uh, despite those apprehensions, you were more worried uh, about things you saw in the Republican Party or in Republican candidates? Remember, here in Michigan, all three statewide candidates uh, on the Republican side were uh, election deniers, uh, the people who at, at different points also supported uh, the folks who went to Washington on January 6th of last year to disrupt uh, the, the, the counting of, of votes. Was that something that motivated you to vote one way or another uh, on Tuesday? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to 
uh, Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll try to include you in the conversation that way. Before we get to phones, I want to talk just a little about uh, what the president said yesterday and what he will do over the next two years. But first, let's take just a quick listen to President Biden. I believe he was in the East Room of the White House yesterday uh, when he addressed the press. As I have throughout my career, I'm going to continue to work across the aisle to deliver for the American people. And it's not always easy, but we did it the first term. Now, I'll be surprised a lot of people that we signed over 210 bipartisan laws since I've become president. And we're revitalizing American manufacturing, gun safety. We did it together. And dozens of laws positively impacting on our veterans. And let me say this. Regardless, regardless of what the final tally in these elections show, and there's still some counting going on, I'm prepared to work with my Republican colleagues. The American people have made clear, I think, that they expect Republicans to be prepared to work with me as well. It was President Biden in Washington yesterday talking about the election results and how he will respond. Before we get to listeners, Patrick, I wonder what you make of his prospects for uh, for getting more of his agenda enacted, particularly if the House uh, goes Republican or I suppose it's still possible that both houses of Congress uh, could could go red. Yes. I mean, it does seem that the Republicans will have a small majority in the House, and uh, it's certainly possible that they will control the Senate by one seat. Um, so in either case, narrow margins. But uh, even if it's just the House that flips, it's going to make Biden's job much tougher. I mean, we saw in the first two years of his first term um, how – much challenge he had getting things uh, together when he just had a 50-50 Senate. Now, he did have some accomplishments. You just heard him talk about those. But if you just remember news coverage, there was a lot of, you know, his Build Back Better plan never came together, you know, because it just takes one senator to defect from his party, and he loses that. And, of course, they have filibuster in the Senate. So he had a, he had a great deal of difficulty even when his party controlled all of the federal government. If... Uh, the Republicans take the House, which appears likely, you know, they're going to do all kinds of investigations. You're going to hear about Hunter Biden all the time. Uh, they'll investigate any number of things. They will, um, you know, the Republicans are very div- divided over Ukraine policy right now. So there's going to be a lot of discussion over that. You have the risk of shutdowns. You have, um, you know, you'll have a fight over the debt limit. And all of those things, you know, gobbles up a lot of time and makes it harder for everyone in Congress to focus on other issues. You know, maybe they can find some areas of compromise. Um, You know, there may be uh, things on inflation that that both parties want to do, but it will be a a tougher job for Biden. Now, this is going to be contrasted with the fact that Kevin McCarthy or whoever the next speaker is, uh, will have an incredibly hard time governing that caucus. Mm-hmm. It's going to be this super tiny majority if the if the Republicans take it. I guess if the Democrats take it too. But if the Republicans take it, they're going to have trouble coming up with the votes for a speaker. And then, like the divisions of Ukraine will just be uh, their divisions on their positions on Ukraine will just be out in the open, and they will have a lot of trouble just mustering the votes, even though they have a majority to pass any kind of routine legislation, let alone higher-profile bills. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Anthony in Ann Arbor. Anthony, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Well, you hear, yeah, that Kevin McCarthy is going to have a slim majority, and Mm -hmm. the House Freedom Caucus is going to give him a hard time. I've seen all kinds of articles about it. They're Mm going to try to get what they want out of him if they can't pick somebody else more in their liking. And it's just funny to me because we had that situation with the Democratic Party the last two years mm-hmm. and had a slim majority. And where have you ever heard of our progressives like our own Rashida Tlaib trying to get a demand out of Pelosi? Never heard of anything like that. Well, she did She did withhold her vote on, um, on the infrastructure bill and uh, talked about withholding her vote on the in- Inflation Reduction Act and, and other things because she wanted – Build back better. Now you can. I think you can make an argument that it wasn't terribly successful. It does seem that the the right side of the Democratic Party, um, you know, uh, uh, people like Joe Manchin, 
have a little more uh, sway over over the party than that. Uh, but it is interesting to, to, to point out that we've been living with this kind of uh, limited authority, even though um, you know both houses of Congress and the White House are under the same are under the same party. Uh, Patrick, it's an interesting comparison. It it, it may be. I, I guess I, I'm not sure if it will be more frustrating to, that it will be uh, a, a Republican-controlled uh, House than a Democratic-controlled Senate that's narrow uh, for the Biden agenda. I mean, he, as you point out, he hadn't been able to, to get Democrats to do everything he wanted to do. Yeah, I think that, uh, and to the caller's point, I mean, there are tensions in the Democratic leadership. Certainly that party has its own, um, you know, battles between the progressive wing and the um, more moderate part of the party. They do seem to be able to keep that in check. And, you know, toward the, toward the latter half of this most recent congressional cycle, you saw Democrats United with Pelosi leading them and, um, you know, less of the um, sort of conflict between the, the progressive caucus and her. And, and so I don't think that was been highlighted of late. Whereas in the Republicans, they have this long-standing fight between their most conservative wing and um, the more moderate parts of their party. You know, I mean, just think back to John Boehner and um, Paul Ryan. They had, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> they had uh, nonstop headaches when they were the speaker, and that is like going to be nothing compared to what the next speaker for the Republicans has to deal with. Because those problems are only exacerbated when you have a narrow majority. You know, when you ha- if you have a big majority, and there's something like the Freedom Caucus, you can, you know, I- ignore them or or give less to them. Mm-hmm. Right now, the Freedom Caucus will have this like be able to tip the scales over whether they have the votes to pass something or not. So that so um, McCarthy or whoever the speaker is would have to cater to them a lot more. At the same time, that is going to make uh, Republicans in swing districts panic because they'll be worried that they're going too far to the right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Patrick Marley of the Washington Post, it was really great to have you here to kind of uh, unmask some of the things that are going on at the national level. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to shift back to local politics, talk about Michigan. We're going to talk a little more about the proposals that passed, all three proposals that passed on Tuesday. Uh, Also talk about Democrats and uh, the way they rolled up big wins, uh, both locally and at the state level. Uh, We're going to be joined by Craig Mauger of the Detroit News and Clara Hendrickson of the Detroit Free Press. We also want to continue to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us, and uh, we'll include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. At the state level, Michigan's politics went the way of Democrats in ways that absolutely were not anticipated in Tuesday's elections. High prices and historically bad years for the party empowered during the midterms were thought to be insurmountable obstacles. But of course, it turns out that they weren't. Democrats won the governor, attorney general, and secretary of state races. And they appear at least to have won control of the state house and state senate. Uh, The state senate is a key win given that it's been 40 years since there was a democratic majority in that chamber. 
Also, all three ballot proposals passed, and they were all three things that were supported pretty heavily by the Democratic Party. So why did Democrats in Michigan have so much success? Why did they seem to do so well in the suburbs, particularly in places like Oakland and Kent and even in Macomb County? Uh, Also, what does this mean for the future of the Democratic and Republican parties in our state? Uh, That is where we want to continue the conversation here on Detroit Today. And we've got two reporters with us who have been following these issues really closely. Craig Mauger covers state government and politics for the Detroit News. He's a pretty frequent guest with us here on the show. Craig, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Clara Hendrickson. She is a politics reporter for the Detroit Free Press and for PolitiFact Michigan. Clara, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Yeah. So I want to start with uh, two issues that we didn't get much chance to talk about on yesterday's show, Proposals 1 and 2. We talked a lot about Proposal 3. We talked a lot about other races. But uh, these proposals were very significant. They make pretty important changes uh, to, to, to politics and uh, political infrastructure in the state. Uh, Craig, I'm going to start with you. I want to talk about Proposal 1. Why do you think that did as well as it did? And what will adding this financial transparency, which was the other thing that happened with Proposal 1 other than uh, than changing term limits, what's that going to do uh, to the climate in Lansing? Yeah, I, I think this proposal passed just because people broadly support what the proposal does. I mean, if you just look at what the change is here, you can support it from either side of the aisle because on its surface, it decreases the overall amount of service the term people can serve in Lansing from 14 to 12. So there, the people that hate term limits kind of on, on its surface at least would say, hey, that, that's a good thing. I mean, people that hate unlimited terms would mm-hmm. say, hey, that's a good thing. And then on the other side, you have this financial disclosure piece. Michigan is one of two states that don't require state office holders to file any type of uh, public disclosure about their financial interests. There is broad support for changing that. As part of your second question, what will that mean? It's all going to depend on what the legislature does in the coming months. This ballot proposal gives the power to set the parameters of these financial disclosures to lawmakers. So they could do one of two things. One thing they could do is just set up a system where lawmakers have to file reports and put out information that's already public. Here's my campaign finance disclosure. Here's what lobbyists spent on me. That's already disclosed elsewhere. I mean, they could do something like that, or they could go even further and make the disclosure broad, make it in-depth, make it really something that safeguards the legislature against conflicts of interest like what they have in Congress. A lot of lawmakers have pledged to do something more drastic than just some basic form that releases information that's already out there. We'll get to see whether they stand up to that or not. So uh, part of what you're talking about, I think, is a really important point about process. We voted to make these changes on Tuesday, and that's the important part of the change or the most important part of the change. But these these proposals, all of them, uh, will have to be interpreted and fleshed out, not just by uh, the legislature in some cases, but also by the, 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 the courts themselves to figure out how they fit in with the rest of, uh, of the legal and political infrastructure. There are a lot of things that are possible because Proposal 1 passed, but that doesn't necessarily mean they uh, they will happen and and people should should keep that in mind you know pick up the phone call uh, your your representatives in Lansing if you feel like this should be more aggressive uh, than than passive um, uh, Craig do you imagine that there will be a lot of wrangling over over what this practical end of, of something like proposal one looks like Yeah, I think there could be. I think the fact that Democrats have, uh, you know, total control makes that less likely. I mean, Democrats have been urging the legislature to institute these financial disclosures for many years. Now they're in power. They have the chance to do it. If they do something that is extremely weak, 
you know, they're going to have to answer for that. Uh, so, so we'll see. And I'm sure they know that. They know they're on record about this issue. The person who could be elected Senate Majority Leader today, Winnie Brinks, has already said that she wants a strict financial disclosure policy. So now it's going to be up to her to implement that. Yeah. Uh, Clara, I want to talk about uh, Proposal 2, which uh, in many ways I think can be seen as a follow-up to uh, some of the some of the things that were were done in 2018 with the the, the voting reforms, but but talk more about uh, what voters uh, what voters decided to do with voting access and protection. Sure. So one of the major changes in this constitutional amendment is that it would establish an entirely new voting method in Michigan. Under the amendment, um, it would require at least nine days of early voting. So right now. Michigan voters can go in person to their clerk's office before an election and cast their absentee ballot in person and fill it out and return it, but they can't actually insert that ballot into the tabulator, but they'd be able to do that under this amendment. They'd go to early voting sites and be able to vote just as they would on election day at their polling location. Um, As you noted, there was that 2018 constitutional amendment that established no reason absentee voting, giving every voter in the state a right to cast an absentee ballot. This amendment is kind of a follow-up to that because it expands absentee voting. It allows voters to fill out a single application to request an absentee ballot for all future elections. And then it also requires state funding for uh, drop boxes in every municipality and prepaid postage for absentee ballot envelopes. Um, One major change too is, um, or I guess it's not really a change, it's kind of maintaining the status quo, but part of the proposal is designed to basically preempt Republican efforts to enact more stringent voter ID laws in the wake of the 2020 election. So proposal two basically just enshrines the laws that are on the books today in the Michigan Constitution. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation that way. Let's go to the phones here and start with Rhonda in Troy. Rhonda, what's on your mind? Well, good morning. Hi. Um, first of all, I'm very happy about Tuesday. Um, I'm the parent of a millennial and a Gen Z, and I just would like to see the Democrats start to turn and show a little more respect for those um, for those groups. They're smart. They care. Uh, there's there are, there are definitely issues that they are very passionate about. They came out, they were starting to really get engaged in the elections, and I would like to see the Democratic Party start to really use that as a fire in their belly for the future of the party to show that they care about those groups and what they care about. They need to start listening to them a little bit more. That's my, hmm. my thought so, on that. So, Rhonda, before I go back to our guests, can you be more specific? Uh, what What are the things that you think Democrats need to do to connect with that generation? What are the issues that you think uh, maybe they're not paying attention to that are that are important to those voters? Well, I think that, you know, in the case of, of millennials, let's say, for instance, I don't know a single millennial that doesn't say to me, well, there's never going to be Social Security when I get there, so I just can't plan on it. And so there's a concern about their future mm-hmm. uh, financially. Uh, That's one thing. Um, I think that, you know, obviously climate change, and I know that people are trying to address that, but that needs to be taken, you know, to the mat, climate change, and and with uh, Democrats. And and progressives, I know, try, but it gets difficult when they come up against the the people like Manchin and and so on. Um, I also think that there is a great concern about how they're not getting the same financial situation as their parents. You know, they're, they're, they're not how it always was when I was a young person. It's like, well, everybody's going to do better than their parents. Not the case anymore financially. And I think that's a concern for millennials when they're paying $2,000 a month in child care and trying to work and, and carry on. I think there needs to be a little bit more listening to what their, what their real day-to-day concerns are. There seems to be lots of concerns about what's happening in all versions of the country and, you know, and geographically, but there needs to be generationally listening to the concerns that they have. Yeah, uh, I, I really appreciate the call uh, and that perspective, Rhonda. Uh, Clara, we don't know quite yet all of the 
all of the turnout dynamics that that led to, to Democrats winning on on Tuesday. I mean, there's some some numbers that have been uh, discussed, but but this idea that that young voters came out in larger numbers and that that may have something to do with uh, with how blue the votes ended up being. It's not the craziest thing in the world. Uh, but but talk about the turnout and how dramatically different it was than what people predicted. Um, uh, Jocelyn Benson, the Secretary of State, says it was a higher uh, absolute turnout than in 2018 when we when we set a record for a midterm uh, election. It, this this was a turnout election. I, I mean, I know sometimes people say you shouldn't say that because every election is a turnout election. But but here. The expectations for turnout and what actually happened, uh, the gap between those two things, I think, really does explain what happened. Sure. We saw just widespread voter engagement in this election um, and turnout exceeding expectations, uh, particularly, I think, due to the fact that there were more in-person voters and anticipated. Um, obviously, there were still many voters in the state who embraced their right to cast an absentee ballot, but a lot of folks showed up in person on election day to cast their ballot in person. Um, ahead of the election, uh, to Rhonda's point, we did see a huge number of young voters registering to vote in Michigan compared to the 2018 election. And we saw um, many college voters taking advantage of their right to register to vote on election day and, and cast a ballot. I think the last voter in the state was in Ann Arbor yeah. after 2 a.m. <laughs> waiting in line right. to cast that final right. ballot. So, you know, people were committed. Um, they, they sort of they waited it out to participate in this election. And I think part of that um, that I've heard across the board is just abortion being a, a driving issue for why people came out and, and voted this time around. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Rhonda, uh, really appreciate uh, really appreciate the call. Uh, let's go to Gene in Detroit. Gene, what's on your mind? Oh, good morning, Stephen. Hey. Uh, I just wanted to uh, throw out there that this may be a good time with the Democrats having control of both houses in Lansing to uh, reconsider uh, abolishing the uh, emergency manager law that has led to so many abuses in the democratic process. Yeah, uh, Gene, uh, you know, you're calling about that issue. Yesterday, we had someone call and talk about film incentives. And, you know, I think it's been so long since uh, since Democrats had even the potential to, to make those kinds of big changes that uh, those issues have kind of slipped away from uh, the front of our conversation about politics. But that's another uh, issue that, that no question um, lots of liberal or Democratic voters probably uh, would like to see. Uh, Craig, there, there are a host of things that people will expect, I think, from uh, a, a governor and a legislature that are of the same party, and the, the list will be longer than they could ever get to. But but talk specifically about things like the emergency manager law, which is uh, deeply unpopular, especially in, in Democratic circles, um, and and other things that uh, the governor may be able to say, all right, we can actually sit down and, and think about uh, taking these on because we have more power than we did before. Oh, I mean, the caller makes a great point that I haven't even thought about in the last couple <laughs> days because of how fogged my brain has been. But yeah, I mean, all of these things are on the table. All of the landmark, you know, controversial policies that the Republicans have enacted, you know, during the Snyder administration and previously will be on the table. It's a question of, as I was, as I was talking to Democrats yesterday, what is the order and what is the timing of doing these these things? I mean, keep in mind, they have very small majorities, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and often, you know, seats become vacant during the term and there are special elections. So, I mean, the big things and the most important things that they want to get done, they will likely have to do those pretty quickly once they take office so they don't run the risk of a seat becoming vacant in the House mm -hmm. and then losing their majority there. Uh, the emergency manager law, I mean, that's that would likely be one of the things that I'm sure they're talking about doing right to work, prevailing wage repeal. These are other really major policy historic things that the Republicans have done that will be put on the table very quickly. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay, we need to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Craig Mogger of the Detroit News and Clara Hendrickson of the Detroit Free Press. Also, we'll continue to hear from you on the phones and on uh, social. Jeff in Roseville, Kyle in Ypsilanti, Zoe in Ferndale. We will get to you if you want to join them. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Uh, We're talking about elections here in the state of Michigan uh, on Tuesday, uh, what the results were, what they will mean going forward. We were talking about the proposals, the three proposals that uh, that passed. Uh, We talked a little about um, the breakdown in Lansing, the fact that Democrats will control both houses of the legislature and the governor's mansion uh, for the first time in 40 years uh, and what that means, what they will do. Before we get back to the conversation, uh, I want to play a little clip of what Governor Gretchen Whitmer had to say about her agenda for her second and final term in Lansing. Over the next four years, we will continue growing our economy by competing for projects to make more cars, semiconductors, and clean energy here in Michigan. We'll keep fighting to repeal the retirement tax so seniors can keep more of what they've earned. We will protect the Great Lakes for generations and ensure that every Michigander can pursue their potential from preschool to post-secondary. Pretty interesting list there, both in terms of what was on it and maybe what was not. Uh, we got two great guests with us uh, talking about all of this. Craig Mogger is a reporter for the Detroit News who covers state government and politics. Clara Hendrickson is a politics reporter for the Detroit Free Press and PolitiFact Michigan. We want to hear from you as well. 313 577 1019 is the number here on the phone. That's 313-577-1019. And uh, you can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work into the conversation that way. Let's go to Zoe in Ferndale. Zoe, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, everyone. Mm -hmm. I wanted to share um, a little anecdote from my polling location. I've worked the last seven elections here in Michigan. Mm. And yesterday we had or day before, we had much higher than expected turnout. And I thought a lot in young people, we had people come with groups of friends, we had people come and bring in their uncle back who voted <laughs> earlier in the day. And of course, as poll workers, we're not asking who people are voting for. But when people are excited, and they're really, they're there to, to cast their vote, and they, they want to tell you about it. We had so many people saying, I came today, support Big Gretch. But more importantly, we had so many people saying that it was Proposal 3. It was reproductive rights for their mom, their sister, whoever. That's the reason that they decided to to come and vote on Tuesday. Hmm. So, uh, Zoe, you don't have to tell me exactly which uh, polling location uh, you were working at, but but give me a sense of where it is and and what the makeup of, of that area is like. Yeah, so we... We were over at Henderson School um, on the west side It's uh, on Chicago. Mm-hmm. There are actually there are six precincts that vote in that location, and it is it's your typical Detroit neighborhood. It's really close-knit community. We had some folks that came in. They said, hey, this is my neighbor. I brought him along. Um, and people who've been working that polling location for several elections were saying, yeah, we haven't had this many people come through in a long time. So it was it was a really awesome day to just see so many people coming out to vote. And we didn't really have many long lines. We just had like a pretty steady stream throughout the day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a great, that's a great uh, anecdote. So I'm glad you called uh, and shared it. Uh, the overall turnout in Detroit uh, was not what we had hoped it would be um, on, on Tuesday, but uh, it's, it's good to hear that uh, you were at a busy precinct and people were, we're fired up about uh, showing up and voting. Okay, let's go next to Jeff in Roseville. Jeff, welcome to the show. 
Good morning. Hey. Yeah, so I, I uh, just a quick comment on a question on Zoe's point. You know, I look at it less as, you know, being the factor of that guy who brought his friend to the polls or whatever. I always look at the, the money and it looks like on Proposal 3, anybody who was watching the ads, a ton of bark, dark money pulled in, poured into the state and really inspired people to get out. Rich Robinson wrote a great piece for Bridge, Michigan, and we can obviously blame most of that on Snyder. Uh, but that's beside the point I wanted to raise tonight, um, today, is so uh, Whitmer fought for abortion rights, for bodily autonomy, for protecting a woman's right to choose, for keeping decisions between a woman and her doctor. And I think that's what ultimately won her the election. So I'm curious, in a second term, how she will deal with university vaccine mandates. If, a, if somebody tells you you can't get the vaccine, you you, your doctor says don't get the vaccine, you can't attend post-secondary education. Mm -hmm. So given all of her talk about bodily autonomy, I'm curious if she will support freedom of choice for university students on vaccine mandates in her second term. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a fair question, Jeff. Um, I, I think the comparison, though, doesn't take into account the distinct difference between reproductive freedom and public health. Right. Um, you taking a vaccine is about you as an individual and, and your choices. But uh, if you don't take that vaccine and you are carrying a dangerous disease, you are infringing on uh, the rights of other people uh, to not get sick. And uh, that generally is the reason that uh, the state or the federal government can can regulate behavior around things like uh, vaccines and why something like uh, abortion rights, reproductive rights, uh, wh which are a, a, a privacy matter and are not a public health issue, uh, are treated uh, are treated differently. But but Craig, I do wonder if um, if the governor, because she has control of uh, the legislature, might want to revisit some of the things that the Republican legislature tried to do. Uh, to limit her ability to, to, to manage the, the pandemic the way she did. That was a pretty big fight in Lansing. Yeah, it was a huge fight. Uh, I mean, it, and it, it loomed over the election uh, on Tuesday. I mean, Republican voters that I talked to at the polls were very uh, focused on that from, from, from 2020. But, you know, one point that I would make is, when was Governor Whitmer's favorability rating at its highest point? It was at the height it was of the during COVID the pandemic. pandemic. Yeah. And that is, that is the real problem that the Republicans face. The issue that was driving their voters, she went too far during the pandemic, which is, which is an argument that, that's played out, and it's a fair argument. But it's not one that is a winning argument. It just has not been a winning argument in the state of Michigan with voters. If your goal is to win the election that is not the topic that you want in the center. And, and you actually saw that on the campaign trail. You know, it was talked about, but it was not the focus of a lot of the candidates' comments. We saw Tudor Dixon talking about what? Education. She was not talking about the pandemic in all of her press conferences. She would mention it, but it wasn't the focus. So, I mean, I think this is a really interesting point. It's one of those pivot moments, you know, pivotal moments for mm -hmm. the Republicans. And it's, it's something that I think there'll be lots of discussion about in GOP circles over the coming weeks. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, really appreciate the call uh, and the comments, Jeff. Let's go to Sarah in Gross Point. Sarah, we're running out of time, but I want to get you in here. Thank you so much, Stephen. I really appreciate it. Um, we were talking about what the Democrats should put on their agenda for this legislative session. And I think one thing that might actually for the first time have bipartisan support is getting rid of the loophole in Michigan law that allows the um, legislature to overturn a governor's veto by collecting a small number of public signatures. Hmm. Uh, that's a that's that's a great uh, that's a great point. Again, uh, Clara, uh, uh, respond to what Sarah's talking about here. There's there's no shortage of things that people will call, I'm sure, and say they want Democrats to do. Sure, sure. Um, I think that's a that's a really interesting point that I hadn't considered. But Michigan is is a national outlier in mm -hmm. terms of 
allowing uh, initiated legislation by a minority of citizens that can bypass the governor's veto and not go to a statewide vote. Um, and one of the things that proposal two does, the voting rights proposal, it basically does away with uh, the Secure My Vote petition initiative, um, which would have enacted more stringent ID requirements that was attempting to override uh, vetoes that, that Whitmer had handed um, to, to GOP legislation to change election law. So, uh, you know, that, that could definitely be on the table and something to, to be considered. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, uh, Craig Mauger and Clara Hendrickson, it was really great to have uh, both of you here to talk about the election results here in Michigan. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow when we're going to talk with a scholar about why men have fewer friends than in the past and how that's influencing our daily lives. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.